0: Let's take a moment to speak to the author of this book, and then we're going to dig into the text here and uh, ask God to give us a teachable spirit so that we might learn from him. Shall we pray together? Let's pray. Lord, we confess to you publicly that our hearts are prone to wander, as the song just said. But your patience and your love for us is much broader and greater than our wandering hearts. We're grateful that you continually pursue us. And we ask even this morning, Lord, that you would continue to pursue us and bring us where we need to be. And Lord, all of us are at different stages of growth. I pray that wherever we are at this point, you would gently move us to the next step as we march onward and upward to the high calling you've extended to us. Help us to become more like Jesus as we leave this place with great joy in our hearts and gratitude to you for what you have done. May you be honored during this time as we love you with our minds, with our wills, with our hearts. Change us, Lord, and be glorified in the process. We pray all this in the matchless name of Jesus. And Lord, each one of your people said, Amen. Amen. How should Jesus followers relate to sinners? How do you relate to sinners? There are at least two approaches that Jesus followers take. Some Jesus followers try their best to befriend sinners with the hopes of leading them to faith in Jesus. And there's another group which uh, try their best to remain separate from sinners. Now, the interesting thing is, both groups use scriptures, a lot of scripture, to support their approach to sinners. I can give you a lot of verses. I'm just going to give you a sampling, two from each mindset, if you will. And so, for example, those who try to befriend sinners point to the following. You may want to write these down in your notes. The first one is 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 24. Paul writes, 2 Timothy 2, 24. And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all. Now that's a command from the apostle Paul to us and that is to be kind to all people. Now that's saints and sinners and everything in between if there is such a thing. We are to be kind to whoever we uh, interact with, right? And so the argument is well, we should be kind to sinners as well. Makes sense, right? Now look at the next verse. This is Luke 6:27. But I say to you, Luke 6:27. But I say to you who hear, Jesus speaking, love your enemies do good to those who hate you. Now, I suppose you can have a, quote, Christian enemy, but generally speaking, your enemies, those who are doing bad to you, may not be Christians, right? Uh, They would be sinners, as the Bible would call them. And so the point there is we are to love sinners. So that's one mindset. That's one approach, one particular group of Christians. The other group, the ones who would argue that we should remain separate from sinners, point to the following. And again, there's way more verses than I'm giving you, but these are just a sample. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. You may want to write that one down. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. Paul says, But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. All right, Paul? So what are people going to be like in the last days? Here's what he says. For men will be lovers of self... Lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy. This sounds like sin, right? Do we see any of this in our culture today? Or am I living on the moon? It's probably even up there, too. If there's anybody up there, I doubt it. Uh, So uh, think about this now. Unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips. Without self-control, fruit of the Spirit, self-control, they're devoid of that, right? Brutal, we're seeing this big time now in the Middle East, particularly in uh, Iraq, we're hearing a lot of reports, right? Haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, these are all sins. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, doesn't sound like believers here. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, so These are sinners that Paul is describing. And what does he say? Avoid all such as these. So now the other mindset says, look, stay away. You're going to get tainted. They're going to lead you into sin. Keep a distance. All right, one more verse, 2 Corinthians 6. You want to write it down, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 15. Paul says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. And here's the question. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Sinners live in the dark, spiritually speaking, right? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? So don't be bound together with sinners. That's the point. So which is the biblical approach? Should Christ' followers befriend sinners? Or should Christ followers do their best to avoid sinners? We have verses seemingly that back up both approaches. How should Jesus followers relate to sinners? How do you relate to sinners? Please come on a journey with me as we walk through the text and we're going to ferret out in this text. Three spiritual realities that hopefully will lead us to an answer to this question. I'm going to warn you now, the answer comes at the end of the sermon, so you'll need to stay awake, all right? Do your best. I'm like a sleeping pill. I tend to put people asleep, but try to fight that as best you can, all right? So let's walk through the text together and look for some answers, and then those answers, I think, will induce uh, where we should end up, right? These are three spiritual realities. Now look at verse 9. I'm in Matthew 9, verse 9. If you're not there, please turn. First book of the New Testament, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, verse 9. Matthew records as follows. And as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax office. And Jesus said to him, follow me. And Matthew arose and followed Jesus. Now, this same event is also recorded in Mark, chapter 2 verse 13 through 17, Luke also gives the same account, a little more detail there, and that is Luke chapter 5, 27 through 32. I'm going to focus primarily on Matthew 9, but I will reference those other two as we need some further detail, okay? All right, so notice it says in verse 9, and Jesus passed on from there. We want to find out where that is. Well, in Mark 2, 13, it says Jesus went out again by the seashore. He's referring to the Sea of Galilee. Closer, right? Actually, he's going out from the city of Capernaum. How do I know that? Well, if you look at 9 1, it says, And getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over and came to his own city. Now, you might say, Well, that must be Nazareth because that's where Jesus grew up. Born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, right? But this is Capernaum, his own city on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, because after Jesus was rejected, in Nazareth. You remember, in fact, last time I was here, we covered Luke 4, and there uh, Jesus spoke in the synagogue, and they so rejected him, they were ready to throw him off a cliff, remember? So subsequent to that, Jesus made Capernaum his new home base of ministry, you might say. So that's what we're talking about, northwest corner of Galilee, and notice it says, Jesus saw a man called Matthew. Now, in the other account, Mark 2.14, it says, "...and as Jesus passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus." So make up my mind, which is it? Is it Matthew, or is it Levi? Well, we do know for sure, for example, that Jesus renamed Simon, right? What was his new name? Begins with a P, not Philip. Peter, right? Simon was turned to Peter. So it could be that Jesus changed Matthew's name to Levi, or vice versa, Probably more likely, I would say, that he had two names. That was not uncommon in the first century. So Levi and Matthew are really one and the same person here. So he sees Matthew, it says, sitting in the tax office. There in the outskirts of Capernaum, Matthew was in his tax office collecting taxes for whom? The Roman Empire, right? The Roman Empire occupied Israel. The Romans were the occupiers and Israel were the occupied, okay? And there was animosity between both, obviously. And so here's the man collecting taxes faithfully. And what could be worse than a Gentile Roman official collecting taxes from the Jewish people? What can be worse than the occupier collecting taxes from the occupied? Well, I think a worse thing would be a Jewish national, the occupied, collecting taxes from the occupied. It's hard enough to stomach the Romans taking their taxes, but Matthew was one of their own. What is he doing taxing his own people? Well, the Roman officials would sell to the highest bidder the right to tax. It was kind of like a taxing franchise. They would collect taxes from uh, the the Israelites. The buyer would become a tax commissioner. The, The phrase we would probably know better would be a chief publican. A chief publican was somebody who bought the rights to tax the people, bought the rights from Rome, of course. And then uh, with this tax-collecting franchise, uh, listen carefully to what one New Testament scholar says, a franchise required collecting a specified amount of taxes for Rome and allowed anything collected beyond that figure to be kept as personal profit. So Rome says, take this amount of taxes from the people. And so this uh, chief uh, tax collector, if you will, would do such a thing, but then take over and above and line his own pockets. And so this scholar says, because his power of taxation was virtually unlimited and was enforced by the Roman military, the owner of a tax franchise, in effect, had a license for extortion. Now, what's interesting is most chief publicans would hire what we'll call just regular publicans to do the dirty work. They would farm out the responsibility. So they would hire these publicans to actually set up a booth, and Matthew would be one of these. They're the ones that are actually taking the taxes from the people. And the chief publican did this so he could enjoy at least some measure of anonymity. So who do you think was despised more, the chief publican or the publican? It would be the publican, right? The one who's actually taking the taxes in the booth. Chief publican was a bit more out of the limelight here. And so publicans, unfortunately, were notoriously greedy. Let me give you an example. Keep your place in Matthew. I want you to go to Luke chapter 3, and you'll see an example here. Luke chapter 3 and this is a scene with uh, John the Baptist. Luke 3, if you'd look, please, at verse 12. Notice what happens here. These are tax gatherers, i.e. publicans, okay? The ones who collect. Luke three twelve. And some tax gatherers also came to be baptized, and they said to him, John the Baptist, Teacher, what shall we do? And John the Baptist said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Now you can turn back to Matthew. Well, what does John the Baptist He's implying that these publicans were way too greedy. And they needed to just do their job and that's it. And so they had a reputation for being greedy. Beyond that, if you think about it, the Jewish publicans would be considered traitors, right? They're working against their own people. Why would they do such a thing? Well, they're doing it for profit. Generally, they were proud and and greedy people. And also, because they had excessive contact with the Gentiles, from the Jewish perspective, from the religious leaders' perspective, they were considered to be unclean. So, they were outcasts, basically, socially. People wanted nothing to do with them. They despised them. And so, What kind of friends would they have? Not many. Most likely, even Matthew was a social outcast barred from the local synagogue. He was not allowed. Can you imagine coming to church and you're not allowed in? They didn't want him in the synagogue because he was a turncoat. He was a traitor and worse. But Rabbi Jesus had a different philosophy on how to relate to sinners and outcasts. In fact, uh, in the other account in Luke 5:27, it says and after that Jesus went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi. And so that word noticed implies that Jesus purposely selected Levi the publican, this social and religious outcast. Jesus intentionally went to him because this is precisely the kind of person Whom Jesus wanted to relate to. This was all by design here. He wanted to relate to someone who knows full well that they are a sinner. And Matthew was conscious of his sin every day. And so Jesus approaches him and he says, You'll see it there in uh, verse nine, just two words Follow me. And Matthew rose and followed him. Now, doesn't that sound abrupt? It's like, can you imagine a stranger come up to you and say, follow me? And yes, sir, you just follow them? Seems very abrupt. So what's going on here? Well, there is uh, what's the film that came out recently? Son of God. I don't know if you've seen that film or not. They take a little bit of literary license there, but putting that aside, I think they get this scene right. Of course, they have Jesus saying some things that we don't have here. But they show Matthew And you can see he's under conviction. He looks at Jesus and says, I'm a sinner. And he just, floodgates open up and he starts weeping. I sense that this man was, shall we say, spiritually ripe for the gospel. He was overloaded with his guilt and his shame and his sin. One scholar says this, it seems evident from the context that Matthew had been under deep conviction of sin and spiritual need. Because of Jesus' considerable teaching and miracle working in the region around Capernaum, Matthew would have been well acquainted with his ministry. Matthew seems to have been yearning for the forgiveness that the perverted system of Judaism told him he could never have. Now, can you imagine? Matthew must have been overwhelmed with gratitude for the stunning compassion of Jesus because most people would walk the other way, and Jesus is intentionally singling him out, To change his life, basically. In fact, we have hints that there was a change in Matthew. Remember, as I said, I believe he was probably a greedy and proud man originally. But in Luke 5.28, there's a little note there. It says, And Matthew left everything behind. Now, when you see somebody who's very materialistic and greedy and self-centered and proud... And all of a sudden, they leave all that behind and humble themselves. I would suspect God's in the mix there somewhere. Because that's not a natural response. That doesn't come out of the flesh, typically. So this man was changed. And out of all the disciples, Matthew had the most wealth because of all the taxes he collected. And yet he's too humble to mention this great sacrifice. If it wasn't for Luke, we wouldn't know about this. Matthew's not going to brag on himself here. Luke gives us a little clue as to what's going on in Matthew's heart. Look at verse 10. And it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax gatherers and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, we have an additional note in Luke five twenty nine that says, and Levi gave a big reception for Jesus in his house. This would be in Matthew's house. So Matthew hosted a great feast for Jesus, the honored guest, and he's too humble to mention it. He's not bragging about, you know, how wonderful host he was and all this money he spent on all this food. We get this information from Luke instead. So here's a man who was humbled, a man who was changed. And since Matthew was a social and religious outcast, logically then, it seems to me, the only friends he had would be other tax collectors, other sinners. This would be the whole group of outcasts, basically, sticking together together. These are the rejected rabble of society. Now, notice that Matthew did not want to cut ties with his friends. Now that he's a Christian, a follower of Jesus, he could have said, I can't hang with you guys anymore. But rather, he throws this big banquet at his house to honor Jesus and who's there. It's the friends, all of his tax collector friends, that he wants to introduce to Jesus. You see, new converts love to share the good news with Jesus. Nobody has to tell them. You watch somebody get saved, and that very hour, they're going to go share the good news with somebody else. They're not going to enroll in an evangelism class. They're just going to do it. Just as we do when we find something. Hey, did you see that sale at such and such? Wow, you got to get there now. The sale lasts tomorrow. i got ten of these for this price. Get over there. This is great news. Go now. Well, that's what we should do when we receive Christ. Do you do such a thing? Are you still excited about what Jesus did for you and the potential that he can unleash in the lives of your friends? This was a natural thing for Matthew. He wanted them all to be there to meet Jesus. Look at verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax gatherers and sinners. Now, these Pharisees probably arrived after the dinner. They certainly would not, quote-unquote, defile themselves by going to a banquet populated with sinners. You know, they, they had the philosophy, stay away, we don't want to get tainted here. And see, they believe that the rabbis and rabble don't mix, unless, of course, the rabbi's name is Jesus, who has a different philosophy on this Notice it says, they said to Jesus' disciples. It appears that the Pharisees were afraid to confront Jesus directly. They probably were trying to plant seeds of doubt in the minds of the disciples. Look at the question. Why is your teacher eating with the tax gatherers and sinners? Now, in Mark 2.16, it says eating and drinking. Luke 5.30, why do you, meaning the disciples, why do you disciples eat and drink. So you put all this together, it would read like this. Why is your teacher and why are you disciples eating and drinking with the tax gatherers and sinners? Now this technically wasn't really a question, it was really a rebuke. Their mindset went something like this, tax gatherers and sinners do not deserve forgiveness and rabbis should never eat and drink with tax gatherers. we refuse to relate to sinners, they don't deserve it and they're going to taint us bad enough we have to have contact in society with sinners, but your teacher actively seeks them out. What's up with that? God cannot be pleased with this. Well, notice what happens in verse 12. But when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus' direct response to the Pharisees must have jolted and embarrass them. The great physicians skillfully expose the errors in their logic. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, as, as physicians, as spiritual physicians, as rabbis, we all agree that these men are spiritually sick. We all agree these men are in need of a physician. But you Pharisees are quick to give a diagnosis, but not provide the cure. You Pharisees are quick to visit the healthy but you never visit the spiritually sick. And so how should Jesus followers relate to sinners? Well, here's our first spiritual reality that's going to lead us to an answer and here it is. The spiritually sick the spiritually sick need the great physician. The spiritually sick need It's not optional. They need the great physician. What do you suppose causes ulcers? Spicy food? Coffee? Stress? No, no, and no, at least according to Daniel Haney of the Associated Press. See, for years, that's what doctors presumed about ulcers. But in early 80s, 1980s, two doctors, Barry Marshall and Robin Warren, discovered a bacterium in the lining of the digestive system that they suspected might be the real cause. The bacterium is called Heliocobacter pylori. Say that three times to see if you don't get ulcers. That's a hard one to pronounce. Heliocobacter pylori. We'll just call it HP for short. Most people suffering from stomach issues will go to their general physician first before they go to a specialist. Typically, it'll be a family physician. But the news about the real cause of ulcers has been slow to reach them. And so instead of prescribing an antibiotic which would cure the problem and address this bacteria here, many persist in prescribing acid-blocking drugs uh, that may heal ulcers temporarily, but then the ulcers come back. Well, in a similar way, many people seek temporary relief for their sin. But it doesn't really solve the spiritual problem. If a person has a sin problem, and everybody does, including me and you, there's no amount of self-help or technique that will completely cure the disease. There's only one permanent cure for a chronic sin problem. What is it? Right here. The spiritually sick need the great physician. Who is he? Jesus. Jesus. He's the only one that can cure the sin problem. This is why he is essential, not optional. The old saying, ignorance is bliss. That's a debatable saying. But do you know people, and probably all of us do, who really, if truth be known, really love their sin? Who energetically pursue their fleshly desires with abandon? If you were to ask them, they would say, you know what? I'm doing pretty good. I don't murder people. I, you know, I pay my taxes. I, I hold down a full-time job. I'm doing all right. The sin thing you're talking about, uh, you know, that's, you're not talking about me. By the way, years ago, believe it or not, many years ago, believe it or not, I sat with a fellow. He looked me in the eye and said, I have never sinned. Well, thou shalt not lie. Does that fit in there somewhere? There you go. That's at least one, right? That's what he said, and he meant it. You see, people who are in that mindset, and believe it or not, they're actually people who don't think they're sinners, contrary to what the Bible tells us, for all have sinned, for example. uh, They're oblivious to the self-defilement and the guilt that is piling up in their lives. And they are, in fact, their own worst enemies. And uh, like most people, they're not going to see the doctor unless they sense something is wrong. Who's going to waste time and money going to the doctor if we're 100% healthy, right? They don't see a need, so why do anything about it? And so, are you praying that the Spirit of God would awaken in these dear ones that you know a powerful sense of their need for Jesus? Because it begins there. If they don't have a need, That Jesus might be good for you, but he doesn't have anything to offer me. See you later. We should be praying for those we know who are in bondage to sin, that the Spirit of God might awaken in them what's really true, which is they are needy and hopeless and helpless without the great physician, Jesus Christ. Spiritually sick, need the great physician. And so, we must introduce them to Jesus. So, I'd like you to pray about and think about the how... And the when, of course, you know who, right? Who these people are. Uh, They might be friends of yours or relatives. And ask Jesus for wisdom from above and for power as you do so. So how should Jesus' followers relate to sinners? Well, let's consider a second spiritual reality, which is hopefully going to lead us to an answer to that question, okay? Look with me now at verse 13. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. Now, Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees. He says, go and learn. They should know this, right? They were really the spiritually sick ones who needed to comprehend the Scriptures. And Jesus quotes their own Scriptures, Hosea 6.6. 6. Do you even know what this means, teachers? It's a rebuke from one rabbi to others. Now, these Pharisees were meticulous when it came to offering religious sacrifices, they had all the T's and the I's and all the dots and everything in place, right? But their hearts were cold and devoid of compassion for sinners. And that's the essence of Jesus' rebuke here. There's just no compassion. One scholar says this, Jesus pursues relationships with sinners, not separation from them. In seeking God's will, he pursues the display of God's mercy. And so, how should Jesus' followers relate to sinners? Well, a second spiritual reality that will lead us to an answer is this. God wants us to extend compassion to sinners. God wants us to extend compassion to sinners. This is his heart, the heart of Jesus. My friend Al was a Jesus follower, a man of God. Uh, He was a police officer. He attended a church I pastored, a free church in Chicago a number of years ago. And uh, poor Al worked the graveyard shift, and his beat was in one of the toughest neighborhoods in Chicago. It's the kind of area you hope you don't have to go in there. If you do, you want to zip out right away. You see, that neighborhood was notorious for gang violence, drug deals, prostitution, all sorts of things. And when he arrested prostitutes, Al couldn't help but notice their look... Of hopelessness, the sense of despair that he saw in their faces. You see, most, if not all of them, really wanted to get out of that lifestyle. It wasn't what they would call a desirable choice. And he happened to notice that a lot of these women seemed to be very young, just girls, looking for a way out, how to get out of this. And having three daughters himself, Al's heart broke for these young women. And so, Al, And an act of extended compassion to these social outcasts offered them the hope of deliverance in Jesus Christ. He tried to share the gospel with them. And then he referred them to a local ministry to prostitutes. And back then it was a ministry uh, that was run by a number of students at Moody Bible Institute. I'm not sure if they're still there or not. But back then they had a strong ministry to these women. Do you know any social outcasts? Maybe it's just a a loner who is uh, socially awkward and doesn't really have any friends. Or maybe it's a young person who is persistently bullied and ridiculed and picked on. Maybe it's a homeless person or unemployed person. Or someone for some reason who has a stigma that society says, you are an outcast, we want nothing to do with you. Could it be that God wants to extend his compassion to them through you and through me? He still works through people, namely his children. That's us, those who know Jesus, Jesus' followers. We are the hands and feet of Jesus in this world today. And there are so many hurting people that we would call outcasts. Colossians 3.12. You may want to write it down. Colossians 3.12. Paul says, And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion. I like that. Kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So the question is, how does one put on a heart of compassion? Well, I think it begins with just confessing. Have you ever told God, you know what, Lord, I'm going to be honest with you, I just don't have compassion for these outcasts that you've put in my life. That's where it begins. And then asking, Lord, would you give me a heart of compassion? You have not because? You ask not, right? Right. Lord, would you give me a heart of compassion? And then I would recommend, if you think about it, these four Gospels are the Word of God, of course, but these are also the biographies of the most compassionate man who ever walked our planet, namely Jesus Christ. And I would recommend studying the passages in particular that show him extending compassion to outcasts, such as we have here. Matthew is one example. And then further, meditate upon Jesus' compassion extended to you at the cross. In other words, if if I could get us all in a time machine, we can go back 2,000 years right at the foot of the cross and watch Jesus extending compassion to us, I think that would mollify, that would soften our hearts, and we would be more compassionate people. We tend to forget what it cost him. And then finally, step out in faith And do acts of compassion for others. You say, well, I just don't feel like it. Well, then put those emotions aside and do it anyway. And the emotions will come later. We do this long enough and we see the blessing it is to others and the blessing that splashes back on us. We catch this bug, if you will, of compassion, of reaching out to others in the name of Jesus. Not because we're such nice people, but because Jesus is so awesome and he gets the glory in the process. And so how should Jesus followers relate to sinners? I'm so glad you asked that question. Let's consider a third spiritual reality that's going to lead us to an answer, and I promise you there's an answer coming. Stay with me. Verse 13, he says, But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. Now, Luke 5 adds another word there. He says, I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. That's the key. This is Jesus' mission right here. And there's an implicit warning embedded in Jesus' mission. You see, since the Pharisees chose to cling to their own righteousness, since these Pharisees saw no need for repentance because they were doing so great, they, in effect, were removing themselves from the only cure for sin. And that's the height of folly. Quite frankly, it's stupidity. That's like going down for the third time as you're drowning, and then somebody throws you a life preserver from a boat, and you throw it back up. Go down. Why? When when we sin, we're not in our right mind. And this is very obvious here with these Pharisees. A repentant heart is honest about its sinfulness and very humble about its need for forgiveness and healing, just like uh, Matthew. But coming to Matthew's house to attend a banquet in honor of Jesus, by doing such, these tax collectors and sinners. We're, in effect, making an appointment with the great physician himself. The one who offers a cure. It's like they were coming to his office. And the way the great physician works, he always deals with the most important issues. And so in caring for others, the great physician, Jesus, will talk about the issues. He'll talk about sin. He'll talk about repentance. He'll talk about faith. A doctor that tells you a lot of nice things but never deals with your cancer in your left arm, let's say, or whatever issue you might have in your body, what kind of a doctor is that? He's not dealing with the issue. The great physician will do it in a very loving way. And so, how should Jesus' followers relate to sinners? Third spiritual reality, which will lead us to our answer, is this. Our mission, your mission, my mission as Jesus' followers, our mission is to call sinners to repentance. Our mission is to call sinners to To repentance. What is that fancy theological word, repentance? What does it mean? Here's a definition. This comes from Briar. He says, "Repentance is, in its essence, a spirit-generated change of mind." Mount says about it, "A radical moral turn of the whole person from sin to God." And so if I'm pursuing sin, all of a sudden I get put in my right mind, and I do an about-face, and now I'm pursuing God. That's what repentance is. It's a turn. It starts in the mind, change of mind, of course. And so, dear friends, repentance is spirit-generated. There's no doubt about it. God has to do that. But God uses us, this is the way he set it up, to call sinners repentance. We're the mouthpiece of God, and that's a privilege. So in a day when hypersensitivity prevails, hypersensitivity about saying anything that might offend anybody in any way, in a day when we're supposed to walk on eggshells at all times and even get permission from others to take our next breath, in a day when we have to be very careful what we say, please do not yield to the temptation to truncate the gospel by omitting the s-word. Because if you do, you're cutting out the issue. The S word, we don't read it in the local paper, right? Sin. It's all over the place. But for some reason, we're not supposed to say it. Jesus is calling them sinners. And that's all of us, by the way. The only difference is we were put in our right mind and received what the great physician has to offer us, which is forgiveness and salvation. So I'd recommend memorizing a few verses and weaving them very naturally into a conversation. I'll give you just a few here. And uh, maybe you already have some, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's also Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin, the paycheck for sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Acts 3.19, it says it right there, repent then and turn to God that your sins might be wiped out. And then finally, uh, Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Now, don't just spit those out at people, but rather in a natural conversation, weave those concepts in so that the Spirit can do his work. How should Jesus' followers relate to sinners? Well, we've considered three spiritual realities that should induce an answer at this point. And here they are. The spiritually sick need... The great physician. Secondly, God wants us to extend compassion to sinners. Third, our mission is to call sinners to repentance. And so, how should Jesus' followers relate to sinners? Here is the answer. Don't miss it. Jesus' followers must build redemptive relationships with sinners. Jesus' followers must build redemptive relationships. With sinners. That's really the best approach, the biblical approach. And so if that's true, then what do we do with those verses I read earlier that seem to say that Jesus followers should separate themselves from sinners, because they're in the Bible too. Well, for example, 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty three says, Do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. That implies don't hang with bad company. So what are the issues here? Well, one is influence. The important question is, who is influencing whom? Should I be hanging with that crowd? Well, it depends on how strong you are spiritually. If you can mingle with that crowd and be a godly influence on them, you do it. If you find that they're dragging you away from Jesus and defiling and corrupting you, then you need to pull back. Can, is it easier at one-on-one? Probably. There's less, quote, influence or peer pressure. And if you're strong enough in the faith, you should be reaching out and trying to persuade them Jesus' way instead of the opposite, right? So influence is one issue. The other is motive, why we do what we do, why we take either of these two approaches here. What are your motives for wanting to isolate yourself from sinners? Is it just for convenience sake because actually their lives are messy and I just don't have time to get involved and I, you know, I got to live my life? It's inconvenient. Or is it loss of reputation? I don't hang with them because I don't want to be associated and seen to be one of them. Is it good old-fashioned lack of compassion? Or is it that fear of corrupting influence? I get that. And that's where the balance comes in with who's influencing whom. I mean, these things all need to be prayed about. Here's the point. Jesus' followers should not establish deep bonds with sinners. As they would with fellow believers. Now hear me carefully. I didn't say don't mingle with them. Don't be friendly. Don't reach out. I just said be careful how deep that tie goes. Because Jesus followers must build redemptive relationships with sinners. That at least implies there's interaction. How are we going to do it, right? There has to be a relationship. That's the platform. What are your motives in wanting to relate to sinners? Is it to pursue common interests? Is it... To gain popularity. I know they're not a good influence, but they've got all the friends. They're popular. I want to hang with them so I can be popular. Is it, quite frankly, to enjoy sinful activities with them? Because I'm with my Christian friends. We can't do this stuff. But I have a good time with them doing this stuff nobody else knows about. They're into it. And I can have fun. And I live a double life. And hopefully nobody knows. Or is it to influence them for Christ? Christ. You see, dear Christ followers, brothers and sisters, we must build redemptive relationships with sinners. You say, okay, I get it. I agree. Preacher, how do I do it? Glad you asked. We'll close with this. This is from the Faith Baptist Church, adopted from an article by Tim Cower. I'm going to give you here ten, if you want to write them down, ten tips to direct your personal evangelism efforts. All right? And I'd recommend that you uh, progress through these ten as the interest level grows. If you sense that they're getting more and more interested in Jesus, you may want to go deeper, right? First of all, very basically, let people around you know that you're a Christian. That sounds pretty obvious, right? Do this in a natural and unforced way. But it's amazing how many Christians are closet Christians. They don't want their neighbors or their coworkers to know that they're Jesus followers. For a variety of reasons. But get that out there. Hopefully that's obvious as they see you live. But make sure they know. Secondly, ask friends about their faith. Whatever they're, even they're Mormon or whatever, it doesn't matter. Hey, what do you believe exactly? Tell me what you believe about God. And then just listen. Listen actively and at least understand where they're coming from. And then third, listen to your friends' problems. Don't ask them for a crybaby sheet necessarily. But foster a relationship where they feel free enough to share some of their struggles with you. And at some point, say, hey, you know what? Do you mind if I pray for you about that challenge? Or give them tangible help if there's something you can do to help them. Four, share your problems with others. Again, this is not a crybaby list, you know, where you're just whining all the time. But open up to them and say, you know, I'm struggling in this area. But let me testify to you how God helps me in this problem. I haven't overcome it yet, but he's really helped me in this way and this way and this way. And I'm thankful that he is in my life and I allow him and factor him into this situation. And then if you think they're still interested, I would go the next step and actually give them an interesting book to read. Maybe there's a certain thing they're into and, and the gospel intersects that. And have them read that book and then interact with them. What did you think? Or maybe sit down with them and read it. And then after that, six, share your story. Let them know how Jesus intersected and transformed your life. And very specifically, give them examples of how he has transformed your thinking, your priorities, etc. Seven, answer objections. They will come. Objections and questions. Answer objections and questions. Hey, you know, I get all this Jesus stuff that he did this, this, and this. But why is it that God allows suffering? If you don't have an answer, tell them. I don't, just be honest. I don't have an answer to that. That is a mystery. Or here's, here's what I think based on these verses. Or, you know, I'll get back to you. Let's, in fact, why don't we study this together? Number eight, invite them to a church event. I would invite them right here. You know, Pastor Josh is excellent at relating to those who are not oriented to the church. I think he's very clear. I think he's understandable. Invite them here to an event, whatever it might be, or just to a service so they can hear for themselves. And if they're still interested, offer to read the Bible with them. Number nine, offer to read the Bible. Hey, would you like to go through the Gospel of John together? And then finally, if they are really interested, then take them through a course on exploring Christianity. What I mean by that is just the foundational doctrines that all Christians should know. The very basics, right? There's a number of basics in our faith, Then there's some that we debate, but there are some that are foundational. Take them through those. All right, here it is. The words of Jesus. My last quote, and then we're done. Matthew 5, 16. It says, Let your light shine before men, catch these words, in such a way. That sounds like intentionality. Jesus is saying, let your light shine with a very specific intent. What is that intent? Here it is. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and pat you on the back. No, no, that's... Joseph Smith version, Salt Lake City. That's not our version. Our version reads like this, that they may see your works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let it shine with intentionality that it brings glory to God and not to self. So brothers, sisters, how should Jesus followers relate to sinners? Here it is. Jesus followers must build redemptive relationships with sinners. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your example as you reached out to Matthew and examples really all over the scriptures, especially the Gospels. And I pray that you would motivate us and empower us. And Lord, we know it's your work. We're not going to do this in our own strength. But that you would empower us, Lord, to be creative about how we approach sinners, to do it in a loving yet truthful way, in a redemptive way. Show us what the next step is for each one of us individually. We pray this in your mighty name and for your greater glory and for the blessing of others. In Jesus' name and all your people said, amen. Praise the Lord.